whether we get any benefit from it or not, isn't that what we are to do? And yet, because we do so, what great benefits come from it? (laughs) You may have come in here tired, weary, broken, beaten, kicked around, shoved around, thrown around. Or maybe you are throwing people around today too. Maybe you came in here doing something. But the Lord's here. And it only can bring us to one thing, and that is, as it tells us in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. That stillness really began when our hearts were quiet before him, but our voices resounded in praise. This evening, uh, before we go into our study, I want uh, us to keep uh, the Herres family in prayer. Now, I'm not up to date with everything minute to minute, but this morning we did receive a a notice that that Peter uh, was, uh, was declared brain dead today. And so we haven't heard anything else yet, but... Uh, I, I just want you all to keep praying for Myrna and, 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 and the family and uh, for strength and, and wisdom and discernment because these are very tough times when a person who's 51 years old and, you know, when he went into the hospital, he went in on his birthday. And, you know, we think, wow. You know. But that's the thing. We just have to always be ready. You know, we always have to be ready because we don't know. What's happening? What's going to happen tomorrow? We don't, we don't know. We have plans. We make plans. We just don't know. We just need to be ready. And, I, and I'm really thankful for all those that have been praying for Peter and for Myrna and for the kids and, and, and all of their family. And, and so we, we just want to, to keep them up in prayer. You know, this, there's still things that God can do and will do. He's in control, as we're learning tonight and as we've been learning here in, in heaven as we're looking at this scene in, in Revelation. So, please keep the Harris family in your prayers. We'll pray for him tonight before we leave. We'll turn to Revelation chapter 4. And... Uh, we began this, this particular chapter last week, um, and we focused our attention really on some things that were mentioned in verse 1, in particular verse 1, and we'll read it in just a moment. But I had mentioned last week that we were going to push on through to the end of this particular chapter, and... Uh, Glad to say, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Only because of this, I I found this this difficulty throughout the week, as well as today, and, and, and especially today. There were so many distractions. Nobody's fault. 
Nobody to blame. Just a lot of things happening, a lot of distractions going on, more than usual. And sometimes when distractions take place, the first place we go is, man, that enemy, man, the devil's always doing everything he can to upset what we're trying to do here at the church and what I'm trying to do and getting ready and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but that wasn't what happened. Just so you'll know, it isn't always him. Because every time I continue to want to, just want to find out what's going on, the Lord always brought me back to this passage that we're looking at tonight. And it has to do with our understanding of who we worship, why we worship, when we worship, and where we worship. And that we worship. There was a statement that people used to say a long time ago uh, about uh, those that were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. And, and the idea was that, well, their heads are always in the clouds, you know, they're always thinking about the Lord, and they're always in the Word of God, and they're always, you know, going off and doing these things, but, but they're of no earthly good down here, you know, they're just thinking about the coming of the Lord and all. But let me tell you this. That's what we ought to be doing. We need to be heavenly minded. And the converse saying is really what is true. That a person can be so earthly minded that he is of no heavenly good. But do you understand that? That even we in the church can get to the point where we look at things in the world and only concentrate on things in the world. But we're not, we're not paying any attention to the things that matter to the kingdom of God. And did you know that even our worship matters to the kingdom of God? So I really wanted to get out of verses 3 and 4. And I couldn't. Maybe just a little bit. But I kept thinking, Lord, you just want us to know something. You want us to know that we as your, as your sons and daughters, as your children, that we need to be so heavenly minded that we can be of earthly good to those who need Jesus and let them know that Jesus is coming and that his kingdom is coming, that his reign is coming, his rule, his authority, his power. He has it, but he's coming again. And it all begins with our worship. So let's look at... uh, The whole of the chapter. After these things, John says, I looked 
And behold, a door standing open in heaven. Do do you remember we talked about that last week? That this door was standing open in heaven. And just in the previous chapter, the last church, Laodicea, that was mentioned of the seven churches, it it was a church that had a closed door and Jesus had to knock on it. And he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. But to the church that's ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus, the door's open. And it's going to be open on that day when Jesus comes to gather His church, His bride. To take His bride into that bridal chamber for seven years. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Meditauta. The happening. The gathering. The snatching away. Let me tell you what's going to happen after this. Meditauta. And immediately, John says, I was, I was in the Spirit. And behold... A throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So now, folks, remember, we're, we're dealing with what John is seeing. And he sees a throne. And one sitting on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like a crystal, And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who is or who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. A visiting minister was substituting for the famed pastor, Henry Ward Beecher in his rather large church in Brooklyn, New York. A great audience had assembled to hear the popular preacher, but, but at the appointed hour, the visiting minister entered 
the pulpit. Learning that Beecher was not to preach, several people in the audience began to move toward the doors. The visiting minister stood and he called out, and rather strongly, he called out, All who have come here to worship Henry Ward Beecher may withdraw from the church. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. Well, no one left. (laughs) No one left. Isn't that sad, though? Isn't it sad? The people would look at uh, who's at the pulpit and say, oh, I didn't come to hear him. But what did you come for? There have been many people that have stood here at this pulpit. I trust God to speak through them. Just as I pray to the Lord every time I come up here, Lord, speak through me. Because I'm just an earthen vessel. But we're not here for me. We're here for Jesus Christ. We come to worship Him. You know, as the church age comes to an end, and after the bride of Christ, the church has been caught up to be with the Lord, we will be gathered around the throne of God. What are we going to say then? Who's on the throne? Let's see. Is that what we're going to say? We saw this illustrated by John. You know, that John himself, in essence, is, is called up into heaven. representative of the of the body of the church of the bride of Christ hearing the sound like a trumpet calling him and immediately is before the throne of God and as we mentioned the, that last time we refer to that event as as the rapture of the church and tonight we're going to see that that heaven is a place of worship heaven is a place of worship as our focus is now on the throne of God And we have to remember that now as we're getting into chapters 4 and 5, we are going to have to see things from a heavenly perspective. We ended with that thought last time. We need to see things from a heavenly perspective. As I I mentioned last time, the word throne is, is used 14 times in this chapter alone, while it is used 46 times total in the book of Revelation. And that gives us indication that God indeed is in complete control. If God is on the throne, then He's in complete control because that throne represents His authority, His power, His might, His glory. And the throne speaks also of God's majesty and of His sovereignty. He is sovereign, ruler, and one who reigns over all things. Why is this important for us to understand? Well, simply because we are not only going to see the throne of God, but also the one who created the heavens and the earth sitting upon this throne. I know that most of you, while planning or when planning a trip to see a a famous site, let's say, just for example, uh, uh, 
up in what was that place? I even forgot. You know what? It is? You know where the, where the presidents are up in South Dakota. You know Mount Rushmore. Yeah, there we go. I've been there. <laughs> I forgot. But anyway, you know, you plan a trip like that. And you you really you you want to plan every little detail because you do all this research of what you're going to see, so that when you get there, you can enjoy the majesty of it all. Now, most of us plan that way. Well, that's what we're going to do tonight as we get a glimpse of the throne of God and of Him who sits upon that throne. We're making preparations to see this ourselves. So as we go back and look at verses 2 and 3 for just a moment, it says, immediately I was in the Spirit, John said. Immediately he's caught up. Though his body is probably there in in Patmos, as it were. In the Spirit, God is revealing this grand vision of heaven. But he catches him up as to be right there where all of this is taking place. And he says, I was in the Spirit and behold a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who has sat, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Emerald. Mankind and the world do not care to give God a throne. Mankind and the world do not care to give God a throne. In fact, they will give a man a throne before they acknowledge that there is an absolute sovereign God who is worthy of their praise, honor, and glory. Please don't forget that Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue. Whether those knees are bowing today or not, Whether they want to bow or not, every knee shall bow. Whether every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord today, no, not every tongue confesses. As a matter of fact, many tongues are confessing against Christ. Or they're professing some other God other than Jesus Christ. But one day every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, To the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. There is no throne for the atheist or the materialist. For the atheist, materialist, or humanist, there is no seat of authority or power that the entire created universe must answer to, much less themselves. If there is a throne at all, it is man who sits upon it. And usually the atheist or the humanist or materialist will say, well, that might as well be my throne. As a matter of fact, they have said that. One poet years ago said that he was the master of his faith in the, or the captain of his faith and the master of his soul, as it were. Or the captain of his soul. I'll get it right one of these days. Invicta. Or Invictus, not the watch. Invictus. But here is, here's the thing. 
pointing out this particular person who wrote that, he committed suicide. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, whatever. So he took his own life. Essentially, man cannot live without the idea, the concept, or the conception of a throne. Man cannot live without the idea, concept, or conception of a throne, which implies a supreme ruler of sorts. But if man decides to dethrone God, which man has done, at least in their own minds, and in their own hearts, in their own beliefs, in their own philosophies, if man chooses or decides to dethrone God, he will, he will inevitably place either himself or some other man on that throne. That's what man does. That's what unregenerate man does. An unregenerate man is a man who is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is a man who has no spiritual life whatsoever. He is dead spiritually. We were all born that way. We were born with physical life, but not spiritual life. We were born in sin. It isn't until we come to know Jesus Christ, it isn't until we are begotten again of the Holy Spirit into new life, that is being born again. Until we are born again of the Spirit of God, we have no spiritual life whatsoever. So, either man places himself on the throne or places someone else on that throne, as was the case with men like the Caesars, like Hitler, like Lenin, like Stalin, and like Mao. But one thing is certain. There is a throne, and the throne is not empty. The throne that John was allowed to see was proclaiming more than just God's presence. Please, please understand that. The throne that John saw was was more than just proclaiming God's presence. It was declaring God's sovereignty and His right to rule, His right to reign, and His right to judge. And again, why? Because He is the Creator of all things. Because He spoke all things into existence. Because He said, light be and light was. He is alone the one who has creative power through what He says. I know there will be other people telling you, oh listen, you have power, you have power to create things with your words. Well, no, you can only create trouble. Because we're human. Too often the things that we want to create with our, with our words and our own thoughts are only to our own earthly benefit. We have to come back to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to come back to trust Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to let His Word be that power in us. So at the center of all things is an occupied throne. At the center of all things today is an occupied throne. God sits on His throne. And consider who it is that is seated on that throne. You know, we can say without any doubt that it is God the Father, it is God the Eternal Father, the Creator of all things. If we go down to verse 11, we, we read it earlier, but let's go to verse 11. It says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. 
Now, the idea here is for you to understand that the, the, the God who sits on the throne is, in, in, in fact, and as we're going to see in chapters 4 and 5, there is mention of God and there is mention of the Holy Spirit, but there's also mention of Jesus in a, in, in, in a different uh, light and context. You know, Jesus is going to be mentioned as the Lamb in chapter 5. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But here, here's the thing. It is God and the Godhead overall who is the one who created all things and whose and by whose will we exist. So consider that it is the eternal Father seated on the throne, because as I said, here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we will see the Father and the Holy Spirit setting the stage for the revelation of Jesus Christ, God the Son. They're setting the stage. As we move into chapter 5, we will see Jesus portrayed as the Lamb. It's okay, you can flip over and look, and you'll see the Lamb mentioned there. Just thought I'd let you know that, but you can flip over. Don't, don't be afraid. We're not trying to keep you from that revelation tonight. So you just, it mentions him as the lamb who has been slain. And it says that he comes and he takes the scroll out of the Father's hand. So keep in mind, remember this. Keep in mind that this is the book of the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. That is beginning here in a sense. We've already seen a lot of that in where, where, where John had seen the revelation of Jesus Christ. He heard what, what Jesus was saying to the churches in the present, which was of course chapters 2 and 3. And now we're seeing Jesus as we will see him. But it is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and we will see Jesus in all of his glory and eventually we will see Jesus sitting on the throne of David who will be ruling and reigning on this earth in the kingdom age. So I want you to remember this. Turn to Psalm 110 verse 1 and you want to mark this in your Bibles but Psalm 110 verse 1 says the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Because there are a lot of people that actually confuse who sit on this throne. Don't want, you, don't want you to be confused about it. It's very simple. Just, do, just read what the Scripture says. It says here, the Lord said to my Lord. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? The Lord said to my Lord? But isn't there only one Lord? Yes. You'll notice that here in this particular text, the Lord, first Lord, is, is actually the, the, the name of God, all capitals, L-O-R-D, which suggests that the, the name Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew uh, which uh, we try to translate as either Jehovah or Yahweh uh, in that particular sense, just to have a name, but, but that's his name, the Lord. And, and of course, the, the, the Jewish people don't even want to pronounce it. It's too, too, too holy uh, to pronounce. So, uh, but anyway, the Lord said to my Lord, being master, and of course, uh, that would be a, in, in the Hebrew. This is Greek, but in the, in the, in the Hebrew, it would be Adonai. So it would, it would be as if uh, it is... Uh, Yahweh God said to Adonai, the Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So we know that this is a prophecy speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the one who's going to sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father. So this is not, by the way, this is not a revelation. This is not a revelation, but a fact already known by the church. Why? Because the Psalms came before the New Testament. So it's not a revelation. But it's a fact that was already known by the church since Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and you'll see there in verses 32 and 33. 
It says this Jesus, this is Peter, you know, he's preaching to the Jews there in the temple. And he says, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. And notice what he says. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God. What is he saying? Listen, you know what it says in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Jews are saying, but there's only one Lord. That's right. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. But in that God, there are three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's clear. We can, we can, we can spend a whole evening just going through that understanding of the Trinity and all. But, but there's one God. So they understood this. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, the first thing that probably came to mind was Psalm 110. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit had fallen on that day of Pentecost um, upon the 120 in the upper room, there where everybody could hear them, and they were praising God in all kinds of languages, and the people were saying, what's going on up there? The Spirit had come down on the 120 Faithful people who were there receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But on that day, that verse was proclaimed. Now, Stephen proclaimed it also. Stephen, one of the elder, actually one of the, the deacons of the early church there in Jerusalem, he proclaimed it on that day, even, by the way, at the moment of his martyrdom. Look at Acts 7, verses 55 and 56. Where he says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, this being Stephen, gazed into heaven. Now this is after they're, they're I mean, they're, 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 they're stoning him. They're, they're stoning Stephen for the things that he was saying about Jesus. He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus. Notice what he saw. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Folks, uh, there is a, a, a very important idea of Jesus standing there rather than just sitting. So, well, we'll, get that. That's not, we'll get to that another time. But, but the important thing is he's at the right hand of the Father. He stands at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is another beautiful picture of the, 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 the door open in heaven. Because Stephen was going to be brought in to the very presence of God. But get this. The person closest in proximity to Stephen's martyrdom, Saul of Tarsus, Where all of those guys who were stoning Stephen had laid their, 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 you know, their cloaks for him to hold and he was observing what was going on. Later he would become the Apostle Paul. He places Jesus there at the right hand of the Father as well. Ephesians chapter 1, 19 and 20. Paul said, and what is this, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us that believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He did it also in Colossians chapter 3. 
Verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Where Christ is. Notice where he's placing Jesus at, his, at that moment in time in, in Paul's uh, ministry. And five verses, I'm not going to go through all five verses, but five verses in the book of Hebrews. This verse being the most popular that I'm going to share with you today. Hebrews 2 verse 2, or 12 verse 2, I'm sorry. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, this is an, an essentially significant and important understanding of where Jesus is today. The Father said, He said, sit on my right hand till. Sit on my right hand until. It is that until that we see in our text. Jesus has been at the Father's right hand throughout the age of the church being our mediator. He is our intercessor before the throne of God. Faithfully living to make intercession for us, the Scripture says. Which is what we will see when we get to chapter 5. But for now, consider this. It is not Jesus taking the throne before the age of grace that John is seeing. It is not Jesus taking the throne before the age of grace. It is Christ rising from the throne at the end of the age of grace. You must understand this. It is Christ rising from the throne at the end of the age of grace. You see, that's what chapters 6 and following is all about. He's going to come to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come and judge. And we are just having that set up for us in chapters 4 and 5. But it begins with worship. It begins with our focusing, our acknowledging where Jesus is right now. Where the Father is right now. Where the Spirit is. The the Godhead, three in one. Where God is. And we, right here, are right there. Every time we worship together, we are entering into the throne room of grace. That's why worship has to be more important than we've made it. We oftentimes let all of the outward circumstances of our life dictate when and how we worship. I'll worship better. I will worship better when I'm not having so many stinking problems in my life. Really? Does the Bible not encourage us to be worshiping through these things? Because the Lord said, I'll be with you always. 
Just that very thought alone, that if the Lord is going to be with us always, then every time we pray, every time we look to Him, every time we consider Him and our need for Him and our dependency upon Him, every time we turn to Him, we are turning to Him in the very throne room of God's grace. Wherever we are. That's our connection today to heaven. That's why it's so important for us not to take worship lightly. Not to take our commitment to the Lord lightly. Not to take church lightly. Not to take our love and fellowship lightly. Not to take our relationships with one another lightly. Oh, we are so good at that. We don't like something in one church, we'll go to some other church. If we don't like something being done the way we want it to be done, we'll go someplace else until we find it. But you're not going to go happy. You're going to go with the same attitude, and once you see something that you don't like in the other church, you'll move to another one. Folks, I hope that you're here because God brought you here. I hope that you have prayed and said, Lord, where do you want me to be? Then if this is where it is, then this is where I need to be. But when it comes right down to it, it's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. We are here to worship God. You know, I showed that picture of that church that was full to capacity. I was in that church. It was in England. Westminster Chapel. Not far from Buckingham Palace. Just a few blocks. It was the great church of great men like D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and G. Campbell Morgan Men that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, that taught the word of God expositorily and just, you know, I mean, just took the word of God and just put it into the hearts of the people. Today, if you notice, there were about, there was a balcony up there that went all the way around and there was a, you know, today when you go to Westminster Chapel, especially if you go to a service there, now this was a few years ago, so I would hope that it's, it's, it's changed, but, but if you go there, it's, it's not, no, they don't even open the, the balcony anymore. Sometimes there's just a handful of people down on the, on the ground floor. They've gone through all kinds of different changes and just letting one, one kind of preacher and after another just come and, and where was that spirit? Well, see, the, the spirit, we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. What is spirit and in truth? Well, worship God in spirit, which means worshiping from our very hearts unto the Lord. In truth means we worship Him in the Word of God. That's the truth. And this is how we need to begin to understand what it is to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. It isn't just, you know, how, how, how we, you know, expect things to happen for us. We're entering into the very throne room of God every time we lift up our voices to the Lord. We may not, we, we may be used to a different kind of worship. We, maybe we're more traditional or maybe we're more wild. I don't know. When it comes down to it, it doesn't matter. What, what matters is are you worshiping from your heart? Are you really in connection with God and with Jesus? Are you worshiping as if you are right there seeing what John saw? But now we need to go on. Our attention is drawn to the throne of God. Our attention is drawn to the throne of God. Look at verse 3. And he who sat on 
who sat there with like a jasper. Notice the description here. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. We're, we were, we're expecting some kind of a vision of God. We want to see what God looks like, right? I, I've seen, I've, got, I've been in some kind of chapels, you know, where they have a picture of, of, of an old guy with a big, long, white hair, long, white beard, reaching out, and there's another guy with a darker beard and a darker hair, and they're sitting there, you know, and... and that's, that's not God. That's an artist's rendering. Somebody probably sat down to, you know, pose for them. Yeah. It's not what it's, John saw, man. He was like, man, all I see is like this big stone. And it's like, well, this is what he's describing here. He's describing the one who occupies the throne, but there is no description of a distinct figure with shape or dimensions. Instead, what the Apostle describes seems to point to the surrounding glory and the brightness of the one on the throne. That's what he's describing. There is a comparison of two stones. There's a jasper stone and a sardius stone. Now, the sardius stone, it's interesting, sometimes it's called the sardine stone. But I don't know what it has to do with sardines in a little can. It has really nothing to do with sardines. But it's called a sardine stone or a, sard- a sardius stone, possibly because it probably came from uh, Sardinia, there's, you know, but we're not, we're not going to go into that. Today it's called a car, carnelian stone or in, in a, a, a stone that we can actually uh, understand. Ruby. You got, okay, it's so a ruby. Yeah, a lot better than sardines. All right. So there's a comparison. You got a jasper stone and a, sar, a, sar, a sardius or a ruby. Now the jasper. Interesting. Uh, there are all kinds of colorful jaspers, but there are also clear ones like this. And this is a jasper stone, and it is very close. Some people even believe that the stone that, uh, that uh, uh, John is describing was actually a diamond because of the clarity of it. But uh, the jasper may w- very well have been a diamond and serves as a symbol of the glory of God, being that it is considered white or extremely clear, as crystal. In fact, that description is given to us in Revelation 21 verse 11 where the holy city of Jerusalem is being described. Let's listen to this. Uh, let's look at it. It's in Revelation uh, 21. I'll begin in verse 10. It, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high and high mountain and, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Notice, The city has the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The glory of God, clear, pure. That's the idea. Clear, pure, white with brightness, but clear. Showing many facets of God's character, of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's grace, of God's truth. The glory of God is that which first grabs John's attention, even as it did the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. You know, Isaiah was given an opportunity to see the glory of the Lord. We're told Isaiah, in Isaiah 6 verse 1, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up in the train of His robe, which speaks of His majesty. The train of His robe filled the temple. 
You know, great kings and great queens, you know, royalty, they, they sometimes when they go through all the pomp and circumstance of coming into, a, you know, some kind of event, you know, they, they have these long robes and they got people that follow them, you know, pulling the robe out and doing all that kind of stuff. But can you imagine a, a, a train of a robe? That, that's called a train, by the way, what, what follows the person wearing the robe. But can you imagine a train that fills the temple? Uh, that's a big train. And it's speaking of the majesty of God. That's how majestic God is. And then the sardius stone. Now please, uh, it's hard to see there. Uh, these are not salmon eggs, uh, Serge. So, and Daniel, we're not talking about fishing. Uh, just, just so you'll know. But those are strings of, of sardius stones. Strings of these rubies. They, they've been polished and all. But they, you can see them in all different uh, natural, but, but that's what they eventually will do with some of them. Uh, you'll notice, obviously, it's red. And it may symbolize a number of things, all of which can be valid. For example, it can symbolize the sacrificial love of Calvary, representing the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for the sins of man. But it can also represent the righteous wrath of God, the color of fire of divine anger. And folks, that goes way back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, where it is said, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Our God, the God that we worship tonight, the God that we came to exalt before His throne, he He is an awesome God. He's a consuming fire. He's to be taken seriously, in other words. God is to be taken seriously. He's a jealous God. In the sense of... of, And and it's a perfect jealousy. It's a complete jealousy. He loves His own. And no one's going to snatch His own out of His hands. Not even His own. And that thought was brought into the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. But notice how. Notice how we are to serve God. Notice how we are to worship God. Notice how we are to to be in His presence with reverence and godly fear. With reverence and godly fear. And folks, let, let, me, let me just add this, this thought. This isn't about, you know, uh, okay, if we're going to be reverent and, and have godly fear, we cannot smile. I'm sorry, there are no smiling in church. You cannot, you cannot laugh in church. Because nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Jesus smiled. Can you imagine Jesus with those kids that came to him? If it, if it had been the other way around where Jesus was sitting there with a frown, man, they would have run away from him. Ah! He had joy. It, it even says to us that he, re, Jesus rejoiced, which means he sang with joy. He had joy. He really knew what joy was all about. He had a perfect joy. 
But people try to take that away from him. So, so understand, we're not dealing with, you know, you know how do, you know, do we walk on eggshells around the Lord? Don't do that. Oh, okay, Lord. Well, what kind of joy can we have doing that? So please understand, when we worship Him, we worship Him reverently. He is God and we're not. He's worthy and we're not. He's awesome and we're not. But we are His children and He loves us. That should give us joy. And by the way, it is in the Old Testament, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, that we are told that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So be joyful in the Lord, but remember who He is. Be reverent and with godly fear. What is godly fear? It's not like shaking in the sense of, if I do this, He's going to just zap me, turn me into a pile of ashes. No, godly fear is realizing something. He is to be respected with reverence and respect, with awe. When we come in here to worship, we're to have that, that, that sense of knowing how awesome God is. How awesome He is. Remember the stories that we sing about in, in, the, in the song, Awesome God. Rich Mullen said, you know, when he rolls up his sleeves, the angels put on the ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. The Lord wasn't joking when he kicked them out of Eden. Who do, do you know who was in Eden? Adam and Eve. The Lord wasn't joking when he kicked them out of Eden. So you see, there, there are things that we need to understand about our living for God with godly respect. And with fear. For our God, look at verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Has God changed from the Old to the New Testament? Is God always, isn't God always a God of grace? See, grace didn't begin when, when all of a sudden the Old Testament ended. Okay, I finished the reading the book of Malachi. Okay, let's go to grace. No, grace goes from Genesis to Revelation. God is a gracious God. Please understand that. But He's also a consuming fire. Who can stand in his presence? When Moses was allowed to be in his presence, Moses could only see his backside, and, and the backside of God's glory, man, just wiped Moses out, man. I mean, Moses come down from the mountain, everybody look at him, man, look at that glow. He had the glow of the Lord on him, just, just, just by being in that, in that uh, proximity of the, of the glory of God. Well, we've got to move on here. I, I, I even thought we were going to get a little further. Well, let's, let's see if we can. Because we need to deal with a rainbow now. There's a rainbow mentioned. Whoops. I went the wrong way. Okay. There we go. All right. A rainbow. There's a rainbow around the throne. That's again in verse 3. The throne is surrounded by a rainbow that resembles an emerald, a, a green-hued stone. It has a, hue, a greenish hue to it. It's beautiful. I mean, emerald green is a beautiful color. Uh, but the rainbow itself is, is a reminder of God's commitment to his covenant with man after the great flood. It was God's pledge to Noah and the human race that the earth should never again be destroyed by a flood. Now, we've had floods, but not a flood like the flood that, that consumed the whole earth. I don't have it one time, and it did change the earth. And it also proved another thing, which we studied a couple of years ago back when we started Genesis. And that is that it proved that the earth is not as old as everybody says it is. 
But that's another. We'll get the taste from two years ago. But it, but it was God's pledge to know in the human race that the earth should never again be destroyed by the flood. Now, in Revelation, judgments are about to break forth. Listen, judgments are coming. But, the, but their end result will not come by, about by flood. So around this setting of the throne, all sovereignty, all power and, and, and authority and glory, the Lord has placed a reminder of His own promise to never destroy the earth again with water. And when you see this particular, uh, this particular rainbow, we're not talking about a rainbow that's only partial like we see here uh, on the earth, you know. Um, very rarely will you see a full uh, uh, rainbow go, you know, in, in a 360 degree type thing. Very rarely. Most of the time it's just, you know, so, you know just half. Uh, but this is around the throne, so it, it is describing that this rainbow of, of green is all around the throne. We as believers in Christ can glory in the sovereignty of God because we know that God's sovereignty is on our side. That promise is to let us know that God's sovereignty is on our side. I will no longer destroy the earth. I will not destroy the earth anymore as I did that day when I destroyed it with, with water. God's merciful. In His sovereignty, God's merciful. I love Luke chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. I kept wanting to find this, this, this one verse that could capture this thought that God's sovereignty is on our side. And it's Luke chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus said, but seek the kingdom of God. And see, that's another thing about worship. What are we seeking when we worship the Lord? In Matthew, the, the passage is, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Here it says, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure. I mean, that's the thing, is that what God does is always good for those who love Him, for those who are His. So realize that God's sovereignty is on our side. So what, what John saw around the throne then, I've got, to, I've got to show it to you very quickly here because of time, but, but it's verses 4 through 6. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Earlier I had a picture up there, and those were the thrones of the, the 24. Um, but around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, uh, thunderings, and voices. Very similar, by the way, to Exodus uh, chapter 20, where Moses goes up to Sinai to receive the law. We'll talk about that next week or next time. And it says, And from the throne proceeded lightning, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We'll go over these things because these are same, similar pictures to what we've already studied before. And then verse 6, Before his, uh, the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. We certainly don't have time to do all of that tonight. But first of all, John points out 24 thrones before he mentions those who sit on them. And again, just like he saw the throne of God, then he saw God. In essence, he's, he's just letting us know that he saw the throne, pointing out the sovereignty of God, and then, of course, God himself. Here he sees the 24 uh, thrones, 
And then he sees those who sit on them. Twenty-four elders sitting and wearing white robes with crowns on their heads. Now, there are those who believe that these are angels. There are some people who teach that these are angels. But chapter 5, if they would just read the next chapter, they realize what they are. Uh, if you read chapter 5, verse 9, it clarifies for us that they are not angelic beings. So let's look at Revelation 5, verse 9 for just a moment. And it says, And they sang a new song, speaking of the 24 elders sitting around the throne, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And notice this, notice this, And have redeemed us to God by your blood. Who did Jesus die for? Did he, did he die for angels or did he die for man? Okay, so you got that clarification right there. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Those aren't angels. So anybody who says they're angels, I don't know, you know, they read that and they must think, Revelation time, you know. It's a epiphany. But they just need to read the next chapter to know who it is. Twenty-four elders are not angels. Because that phrase that they sang cannot be sung by angels. Christ did not come to redeem angels but mankind. Therefore we can say that these 24 elders are representative. And and, and listen to me carefully because we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we go along into the book of Revelation. But these 24 elders are representative of Israel and the church. Israel and the church. There, there are people today and churches today that do not like to talk about Israel. Oh, I'm sorry, folks, but if you read the Scriptures, you've got to know that God still loves Israel. They're His people. Even if they don't even know that they're the chosen people, they, they're His people. And He's coming back to deal with them so that they will see who He is. So, understand this. They're representative of Israel and the church. The heads of the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles. They are representing Israel and the church. And if they are indeed representative of believers redeemed by the blood of Christ throughout the ages, then here is yet more proof that the church of Jesus Christ will not pass through the tribulation period since we find these singers in heaven before the beginning of the judgments. So there's one more proof. They're singing before the judgments. Not in the middle of the judgments or after the judgments. Before. And as for the identity of the 24 elders, let's look closely at that. Turn all the way back to Revelation 21. We're almost done. I'm, I'm a little late here, but we've got to finish. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. A little small here, so read it on your Bibles. Also, <clears throat> speaking of the holy city, of, uh, remember we were talking about the holy city before, of Jerusalem. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So there's the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. That's the description of half of the elders. And then three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's another uh, clarification for us to uh, connect, you know, these 24 elders that we said are Israel and the church. And that is, it's right there that we're going to go ahead and, 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 and close for tonight, but we'll begin here next time. But, uh, but I do have this, these questions, or this question. I've, we, I've been touching upon it throughout this evening, and the question is, do we come to church 
to worship man or to worship the Most High God. Well, I, I know that we will say, well, we come to worship God. And my encouragement is, please do so. Please come to worship the Lord. Please come to worship Him. I was, I was actually, I've got, to, I've got to say this before we close. And we're going to continue next time and cover the rest of the chapter. Please, Lord. But, uh, but, but I was touched by something said in a, in a meeting by someone the other day. That was actually in prayer. And I guess, I don't know why, but it, for some reason I, it just hadn't hit me before in this manner. Maybe it has, but, but it really came distinctly clear. And, and that is, you know, <clears throat> let, me, let me ask it by, by asking this question, or let me state it by asking this question. We, uh, how many of you really, really like to go to the movies and, and get there 20 minutes into the movie? Or five minutes or ten minutes into the movie. We don't like it, do we? Why? Because we kind of lost sense of we don't know what's, what the movie's all about. And now because we kind of lost, you know, we, we came in. We never do that, right? We, we get there pretty early because, you know, the lines are long for the popcorn. And, and those big dill pickles. And, uh, and the, uh, those, those chocolate covered peanuts. I forget what they call them. And, and, uh, and all the other stuff, you know, they sell. And, and, you know, so we, we're always there on time right? because we don't want to miss the start of a movie. Why do we want to miss the beginning of worship? When we're dealing with the Most High God. When we're dealing with the one who created us. The one who loves us, cares for us. The one, the one who saved us. Wow. Isn't that it? What a thought. I don't want to be late to that. Hurry up, come on. We, tell, we get everybody, come on, get in the car. Hurry up. Hurry up. We go through lights and stuff. And, well, we come like this to church. I don't understand. I hope we can understand tonight. Now here's something i got to tell you. I know that I'm preaching to the choir. Because you guys are here on a Wednesday night. And I thank the Lord for you guys. I thank the Lord for everybody who comes on Sunday too and on Saturday. I do. I know they're busy. Many of them probably are working today too. So I understand all of that. But on the days that we worship, is it important for us to worship from beginning to end? It's a good time to start. I don't want to miss a word of what we can say to the Lord when we're before Him as one body. So that's my encouragement to you. Just love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and realize how important worship is. Amen? Let's pray.